to Shelter and Solidarity, a deep dive with artists and activists in this moment of COVID pandemic. I'm your host, Joe Ramsey, live streaming to you here from my home in Dorchester, Massachusetts, just south of Boston, in what is now the eighth week of sheltering in place. I'd like to welcome all those who are watching us live on Facebook, those who are about to join us live on Zoom, and those who will be watching later on YouTube. And I'd also like to thank the sponsors of this program, Shelter and Solidarity, Hardball Press, Hardball Press, Labor Press, Encuentro Cinco, Socialism and Democracy, and especially our Socialism and Democracy partner and co-editor, Matt Callahan, for that song with which we open, which is in fact called Shelter. Today's show is our first attempt at a two-hour broadcast. First, we will have hour one focused on the battle for the future of higher education. Our second hour, which we hope you'll stick around for, will be focused on May Day organizing and the question of how to build working class power in and beyond this COVID moment. Starting with our first topic, the battle for the future of higher education, as a member and a worker and an educator in higher education at UMass Boston, I can say higher education and public higher education in particular has been no stranger to crisis. Whether we're speaking of the long trend in the decline of public state funding, the rising tuition which has limited access to our public institutions, the decline uh, and erosion of working conditions, which includes the rise of contingency for faculty and the erosion of tenure track positions, whether we look at the corporatization of the, of the university, the rise of what is often called upper administration bloat, the creeping privatization, the treating of students as customers, the increases in class size, the push of online education as a substitute for in-person, even before this COVID crisis, and overall the threat to declining quality of a liberal arts and a broad education for the masses of people in this country and beyond. These crises are not new, and we've been living with them and struggling with them for some time. That said, from a higher ed perspective, we've had crisis, but never a crisis quite like this. My first guest, our first guest today, is Professor Anna Kornblue. Anna, Anna is Associate Professor and Associate Head of English at the University of Illinois, Chicago. She's author of three books, the most recent of which is The Order of Forms, which has been receiving high advanced praise, uh, focused on realism, formalism, and social spaces. But Anna is also the founder of two scholarly collectives, including uh, the Experimental, the Chicago Circle for Experimental Critical Theory and the V21 Collective. She's an activist and Anna and I have been corresponding for some time about trying to figure out what are the ways we can respond to this crisis in a creative and powerful way. Uh, that conversation started when Anna published a great piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education, I really recommend everyone check out after this episode, focused on academia's or academes so-called shock doctrine moment. Uh, Anna, I'd like to bring you into the conversation first and we'll bring in folks one at a time. But Anna, first off, how are you doing? Uh, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me here. It's a little bit weird to know where I am, um, uh, but I'm delighted to, um, to be in a conversation with people who are really trying to imagine um, a we in this moment across the country and across campuses. Yeah, I think that's a great, great point. I hope we can come back to what, who is the we we're trying to be. 
um, and to become. Anna, your piece, I thought we could start with the shock doctrine piece that you wrote, right? Taking that kind of somewhat familiar concept now or popularized concept of Naomi Klein about the shock doctrine and kind of trying to apply it and really kind of sound a warning at the very start of this COVID crisis moment as universities had shuttered most of their, on, their, their physical campuses. You know, what do you see as the relevance of the shock doctrine concept to this moment? What do you see as the kind of particular dangers that we need to be aware of? Not only uh, microbiological dangers, right, of, of coronavirus itself, but the kind of administrative and political dangers of this moment. And um, yeah, I mean, maybe we could start with the dangers and then of course work towards what might be the kind of responses that would be appropriate to the dangers that we're seeing. Because uh, of course, Naomi Klein uh, talks about, right, the shock doctrine can go either way. So what's your reading of the shock doctrine in higher education at this moment, Anna? Yeah, it's a good question. And the either wayness is a key part of the question. Um, even when you say like, how are you doing? You know, I feel like I don't know. Are we living in just outer rings of dystopia? Or are we like in some portal of something amazing emerging, you know? Um, and I find that um, indeterminacy um, really, um, really hard uh, for thinking and for acting right now. Um, so that's something I, you know, hope to learn from people today about. Um, I guess, you know, shock doctrine-wise, um, one thing is the importance of learning from the past, right? So I'm sort of not overstating um, the uh, unusual or emergent quality of uh, this moment. Um, shock doctrine, that ambiguity of whether there is um, hell or something else uh, coming here is, you know, it built into that concept that only crises produce change. It's a um, Chicago School economics, you know, concept, a Milton Friedman concept. Um, and Klein, um, in her book, she's trying to show how that um, is really integral to capitalism, um, that, we sh that moments of collective trauma and of emergency are time and again used as openings for really drastic um, economic and social re-engineering. Um, but those are also openings for a radical um, emergence of something else, right? Um, so the recurrence of this pattern in history across the um, 20th century in particular, but earlier crises as well. Um, so Klein is interested in things like Latin American coups and the Iraq war and Hurricane Katrina, right? Um, that recurrence prompts her to sort of redescribe capitalism itself as fundamentally um, disaster oriented, right? She, calls, she says we should call it disaster capitalism, that capitalism um, regards disasters as market opportunities. Um, and so in this pandemic, you know, one way to sort of read the shock doctrine broadly before we think more specifically about higher ed is to say sort of like what are the large actors in the U.S. that are profiting even as we are teetering on a Great Depression, right? Companies seeing opportunities for profit in this emergency. Instacart is profitable for the first time this quarter, first time ever that was reported yesterday in the Wall Street Journal. Amazon is expanding its already colossal reach. Zoom is skyrocketing. We are zooming right now, right, to our peril. Um, all for higher ed, all of our organizations, all of our institutions have, you know, wholesale signed on to these ed tech companies. Um, and in most cases, I bet there was zero faculty input or very little faculty input in negotiating the terms of these deals. Um, and they haven't been disclosed to us, right, in terms of um, what protections our institutions sought from ed, com ed tech companies or Zoom tech companies. Um, so, 
in the already um, crisis conditions in higher ed, as Joe was like elaborating, right? Um, we were already in a man-made crisis before the pandemic. Um, so then um, we're kind of in this place where learning and researching and networking are all being tremendously reorganized. And so this is an emergency, it's a shock. And one of the lessons from Klein is that um, there's a gap between the emergency and then like our ability to make sense of it or um, you know to tell sort of um, ex explanations of it, to tell stories about it. So when I wrote that Chronicle piece, which was you know already like uh, seven weeks ago, eight weeks ago, something like that, um, I was just kind of trying to get an explanation that could get out ahead of um, some of the things that I saw um, you know coming down very fast at my institution. Um, and that I was sure were coming down elsewhere, right? Potential issues um, we might face. Um, because um, this crisis can easily go the way of the other crises in history, um, but it can also, you know, in terms of providing cover, right, for pre-existing agendas. Um, but it can also go another way. Um, and we saw immediately that um, the pre-existing agendas were being implemented in higher education in March already provosts and presidents were announcing changes to tenure track teaching loads they were uh, announcing program eliminations they were announcing research budget cuts um, and then came after those immediate actions um, from even the most wealthy institutions in the country right formal hiring freezes in some cases for multiple fiscal years uh, non-renewal of um, more contingent contracts refusal to extend graduate student funding or health benefits for grad students and NTT faculty. And it's the preemptive character of these um, decisions, their kind of precipitous action in a situation where we had and really still have no idea what's going to happen over the summer or next fall in terms of leadership, in terms of policy, in terms of the broader economy, in terms of student demand, public health, or you know, vaccine innovations, right? Um, and the callous character of these preemptive actions, right? In the case, um, for instance, of wealthy institutions insisting in print that their wealth is for the future, that it is not for the present, right? Um, these are some of the indications that a shock doctrine is in effect already, right? Um, and so the question I think for um, leaders, administrators, faculty, students, activists, for academic labor, um, is how we wanna explain these dynamics and tell this story and get ahead and convoke a unified response. If a crisis is a portal to change, right? It's not, um, it's, it's always that ambivalent phenomenon for, for Klein and for Friedman, <laughs> um, it should be for us. But how can we make some demands cohesively, collectively, and right now that the change be for the common good? So I think that's kind of what I would like to, you know, hear from other people about is imagining um, across public private, um, across um, different categories of labor, um, it, you know, maybe even beyond our sort of industry, right? Um, what are the, some ways that we as uh, people who should be skilled at anticipating shock doctrine and at creatively responding to it and at, um, you know, providing or closing that gap between the emergency and the sort of ability to understand it? Um, what, do, what do you want to see us do? Yeah, and I mean, thank you so much for that. I'm, I'm going to bring in our, our next two guests in a moment, uh, and we actually have a, a, a fourth guest who's a respondent, Christopher Newfield, will be joining us after. Um, but before we do that, I just want to, I want to flag two things in what you said. I mean, I, I think your analysis, your, you know, your expert narrative and narrative analysis is kind of apparent, right? Because you're almost like saying, 
we need to think about who are the actors and the agents in this moment, right? Not just get lost in the fog of the fear. And what is the actual timeline, right? On what decisions are being made, right? Rather, you know, it's, there's a danger, right? That things that seem to be responding to the crisis as if they're responding out of necessity are in fact creating and compounding the crisis and twisting it in a particular way that makes it seem like a fait accompli when it's really, when really there's an openness there and potential that is being, you know, kind of hidden. So I think that the, that emphasis on telling the story, I think is really powerful. And I think it's, it's also a great moment, the, the need to know the enemy and to, tell, to, cope, to think about this in terms of telling a kind of story is, is a way to bring in both our, both our uh, next two guests. First off, I wanna bring in Barbara Mattaloni, uh, who is a, the, uh, the director of education at Labor Notes and was the uh, great, I would say, president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, my own home union here, Educators Union in Massachusetts. I want to bring in Barbara Mattaloni, who works with Labor Notes, and of course, insofar as doing that, is very focused on telling the story and helping workers to tell their story. Barbara, thank you for joining us again here uh, for the second time on Shelter and Solidarity. Happy to be here. Good to see everybody. Great. Uh, ben, ben Mansky will be our, our next guest. Uh, he is uh, a longtime educator and activist working in campus movement since the 1990s. He is currently a sociology PhD candidate at the University of California, California Santa Barbara, and out in California is very active in the UC-wide um, wildcat strike efforts, among other efforts. He's been a longtime uh, student and activist challenging uh, corporate, the corporatization of the university. And I think, you know, Ben, I'd like to ask you, and then we'll come back to Barbara to think about what, how workers are responding and educators are responding to this moment. But Ben, perhaps you could share some of your thoughts, whether it's from uh, on the ground out there or your more national kind of broad strokes thoughts on how the, you know, corporatization of the university is kind of apparent in this moment and, and what we need to know about those trends to arm ourselves for the present. Well, I'm glad to be here with all of you and to have this discussion. I think it's a very important discussion. Um, I, uh, I'll start with the local and then I'll go to the national and the general beyond that. Um, just for anybody who has not been paying as much attention to the struggles that have been happening here in California, as opposed to in their own communities, uh, there has been a system-wide wildcat strike, an unsanctioned strike by graduate workers throughout the University of California system this winter and early spring. Um, that uh, began as a strike for a cost of living adjustment, or COLA, uh, a strike for, as we put it, uh, pay that can allow us to live here, uh, because as I'm sure many people are aware, the cost of living uh, here in California is uh, vastly out of proportion to the incomes and, and, and wealth of most working people here. Um, quite a shock for me coming from Wisconsin uh, to come out here and find out that I would be paying uh, effectively 95% of my uh, TA uh, income for rent. Uh, so there's a lot of other things people have to do to make it work. Um, so this has been building for a while um, and building particularly at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where in December they began a wildcat strike. My campus, my university was the next to follow as part of the UC system. We organized a solidarity rally. Uh, shortly thereafter began organizing and we joined the strike in February. Um, uh, but I'm not going to give you a blow-by-blow -blow of what's happened. That would be days and days of analysis, and a lot of that is happening here. But 
um, you know, the long and the short of it is that we had been in a process that was extremely promising. I mean, it was really building. It built from Santa Cruz to Santa Barbara and to Davis, San Diego, UCLA, Berkeley, Riverside, and to other campuses. Uh, and the slogan of the strike for, for some time and still is spread the strike. So hashtag spread the strike. And it was spreading uh, to the point at which we're talking about tens of thousands of people mobilized across the UC system. We had marches of 3,500 or 4,000 at our height, daily pickets all day, you name it. Uh, then COVID happens. Uh, and uh, the way in which the strike was developing. Um, and, uh, and it wasn't just, of course, the pandemic that transformed it, but also the responses of uh, management and the responses of the state and the responses of uh, various actors within the strike. Because, of course, there's great variation among those who participate in a mass uprising of this, of this kind. For me, the Wildcat bears more resemblance to a community uprising like I was part of in Wisconsin in 2011, uh, like the Seattle uprising, et cetera, rather than a traditional uh, labor strike, uh, which I've also been involved with through uh, my unions. So uh, where do we stand right now? Um, the Wildcat as an economic strike is largely over, okay? Um, uh, Santa Cruz Wildcatters announced a few days ago that they were submitting their grades. Uh, and uh, it seems likely that something similar will happen here. Uh, we've been sort of the last holdouts. Uh, they have faced by far the greatest sanctions and penalties with 82 people terminated. Um, so, but, but that said, you, when you have this level of mobilization, there are always outgrowths and there's always continuity, right? And so there have been deliberate programs of action that have been implemented. So for example, across the UC system tomorrow, there's a May Day general strike, we expect Thousands of people will participate in various ways in that strike. There are car caravans and protests in solidarity and in, I shouldn't just say in solidarity, but in common cause with community organizations uh, that are uh, calling for bailing out the working class. People are trying to get out ahead of austerity by defining an agenda for rescuing not only the university, but for all public institutions and for working people in general. So we are trying to do that. And that's where the Mayday mobilizations are going. Secondly, uh, there has been a transition to something called Strike University, which everybody here can go online and go to strikeuniversity.org, which is internal popular education. It's been going on throughout the UC system. Third, uh, the rise of social welfare campaigns on various campuses. So uh, organized forms of solidarity and mutual aid uh, to assist both members of our university communities who are struggling the most and also members of our communities. And then I, I return to our union, uh, to, we are all members of UAW Local 2865, um, and it should be recognized the strike, and it started out uh, not only as a strike against the university, but also a strike against our own union. And I can get into the details of that, but what is, we've been forced into is a renewed reform effort. So that's where things stand right here. Um, I'm just going to turn briefly to a, a series of broad generalizations about the current moment, okay? Not just about the UC and UCSB, where I am, but uh, about the broad uh, sort of the current moment for higher educational organizing in the United States. So I want to recognize that we are at a point in my lifetime, and I think actually probably the lifetime of everybody here, where we have the greatest disorganization of campus movements uh, that we have seen. Okay, so it's, it's, it's kind of, this is a bit of a conundrum or paradox. Um, not, I'm not talking about union density in terms of labor organizations, but there is no United States Student Association 
There is no national organization for undergraduates. That is the first time that has been the case since 1948, okay? There is no functioning coalition of graduate employee unions. There are efforts to rebuild the coalition of graduate employee unions, but that is not operational in the same way that it was before. Okay. There is no single think tank or strategy center for campus organizing, no center for campus organizing like there was in, in, based in Boston in the 90s. I was briefly on the board of that, worked with them for many years, no democratizing education network of the type that uh, I and others coordinated in the 2000s, um, no Tent State University effort, nothing like that. Um, until now, I have not been aware of any roundtables of higher education organizers, so we are just building you know, rebuilding things that, that had existed in the past. So one thing that we see in higher ed, and I also think this is replicated across societies, we have much lower levels of organization in terms of traditional organizations than we have in the past. Secondly, we actually have a mass base and political consciousness that is also at a higher level than at any point since the 1970s, right? So there are many more people prepared to act who have a sense of what the problem is that is shared, um, who are uh, prepared to organize collectively uh, in new ways. And that comes out of the mass uprisings of the past 25 years and the movement building process of the past 25 years. Okay? So it's a little bit of a, uh, let's just call it a dialectic maybe between those two things, right? Um, uh, and then finally, we have the same larger structural context uh, that we have been living with since, uh, you know, that's been built up out of the late 1970s into the 80s, into the 90s. I give talks on the corporatization of education. I could talk about the Bayh-Dole Act, the corporatization of research and how that's driven, tuition hikes and other things. I'm not gonna do that here. But I'll just say that we are, we are living under the same regime that had been constructed over this time, except that it's much accelerated as others have said, as you said, Joe, and as Anna said. So we know that. So what does that mean for what we must do? Okay, first of all, we can have certain expectations about what will happen, right? We, uh, we know what management will do. We know what capital will do. Uh, we know what their agenda is, okay? Um, uh, secondly, uh, we have a lot to work with in terms of our people and our communities. So there is a lot of unorganized labor, ingenuity, capacity, and willingness to take risks that, uh, that we can work with. Uh, and third, we need to recognize that we are seriously under-organized and under-resourced. And that is a major problem. And in every major struggle I've been a part of, where we were not able to deal with the resource and organization problems, demobilization from above was successful in the end. You can have radicals get out there, organizers get out there, identify the problems, mobilize incredible historic uprisings. Wisconsin is a classic case of this. But if you don't have the resources to allow people to build horizontal forms of organization at the base and to resist demobilization, then you will lose, right? So we have to deal with that problem. I'll stop there. Thank you, Ben. And on that note of building resources, I mean, I can think of, uh, and as well as building new networks of higher educator organizers, I think that those are both notes to bring in, finally, Barbara Mataloni to the conversation. Barbara, thank you for, for being with us again. Barbara, I know, I understand you've been involved in some organizing, much organizing through labor notes that, is, that has involved education workers and higher education workers in particular, uh, among other types of workers. Could you speak uh, to that, uh, that organizing that you've been involved with personally, that Labor Notes is involved in, as well as to other organizing nodes and movements that you see happening. I'd also welcome your comments. A lot has been said already. I would welcome your own thoughts on what has been laid out by, by Anna and Ben 
uh, as we as we create a dialogue here, and we'll bring Chris in in a, in a moment. Uh, but Barbara, please uh, let us know. I know you're you're privy to a lot of great work being done, and I would love to hear your not only the report but the reflections on it. Yeah, thanks again. Um, yeah, there. I mean, there's there's a lot of good organizing happening across the country in a variety of sectors. Um, higher education, I think Ben is accurate, is, is not actually enough of one right now. Uh, and, and, uh, and that's a real concern, although K-12 education uh, has been leading the way for the past, I would say, since the Chicago teacher strike uh, back in 2012. Uh, has inspired and taught a lot of us uh, what it means to organize in, in the K-12 uh, public sector. Um, and to that, just as a little history, uh, coming off of the Chicago teachers' strike, which uh, really was, was made possible because of the caucus of rank-and-file educators, which was the progressive caucus that took over the union in 2010, uh, the, the core um, really taught the rest of us in K-12 uh, education about how to organize. Uh, and that uh, what came from that were a number of progressive caucuses uh, growing in K-12 unions. Uh, the one that uh, you and I come out of and Colleen uh, on the call, Educators for a Democratic Union here in Massachusetts and the MTA, uh, which was, I was able to be elected out of that caucus. Uh, but caucuses across the country, Union Power in UTLA, the Working Educators Caucus in Philadelphia, the Movement of Reconciled Educators in New York, and lots of more uh, what I refer to as fledgling caucuses. Uh, we've been meeting for the past eight years on a monthly basis through phone calls uh, and um, on a yearly basis in uh, conferences. Uh, a, a group which we call the United Caucus of Rank and File Educators. Uh, and that group, uh, we meet and teach each other um, how to organize for power within our unions to make our unions more democratic, more rank and file led, and more militant. Uh, and I would say that um, while there are lots of pieces that led to uh, the West Virginia teacher strike and the red state revolt that came after that, um, that the, the capacity of UCOR to support the work as it was happening and beyond has been critical. It was critical to my work at the in Massachusetts Teachers Association. UCOR taught me, supported me, supported the Educators for a Democratic Union. So when I came to Labor Notes, um, and I was working with K-12, but I also come out of higher ed. I was at UMass Amherst uh, before I was elected. Uh, first I lost my job and then I was elected. That's a whole other fun story. Uh, but um, I looked around in higher ed and I said, we need to be doing the same kind of development of rank and file uh, democratic left caucuses within public higher education unions uh, because public higher ed you know, was was next. I mean, there, there was whether at, at that moment, uh, you know, six years ago, I don't know how cognizant uh, most rank and file workers in public higher ed were uh, tuned in to what was about to happen, uh, to the onslaught that was coming in terms of privatization. Uh, 
and and the and the really deep defunding and austerity uh, that was going to continue in in public higher ed. Um, and so I just through contacts that I had said, let's start to build a network of uh, of workers who in, in public higher ed who can begin to organize. And at that point, and I I time is so lost since the pandemic started, but I, I think it was about 10 months ago that we just started meeting on a, on a monthly basis and gathering folks together with the idea that let's talk about how we can change our, transform our unions uh, and, and really grow more powerful uh, unions. Um, and then the pandemic hit and we were doing work with that. I mean, we were helping people to grow caucuses, to get elected, to push their union leadership, in a more militant direction, um, and then the pandemic hit, and we recognized this. We all on this phone uh, that in this moment of disaster, of capitalism, and crisis, that we needed to really sort of double down on our organizing, and we've extended the networks. Network has grown dramatically since then. Um, I guess what I want to say about like that's sort of the details of it, but like. The answer to the problem, uh, as much as we are in a crisis where time is moving uh, sort of faster and slower, <laughs> uh, is still that we have to organize. Um, and we can't like skip that phase. Uh, you know, the next hour we're gonna be talking about like May Day events and uh, even since the pandemic, you know, like lists and lists of demands that people are making. And, and the question is like, we have, have we built the power to win those demands? Uh, and the answer is mostly no at this point. And I don't say that uh, at all like pessimistically, but just like, let's be, let's understand the context in which we're doing this work uh, and, and what it is that we have to do in order to uh, have this crisis turn in our direction as we go through the portal to have it be our world that we want at the other side and, and not uh, more violence of capitalism. Um, so what we've been doing in that group, and I just wanna sort of share this with you and we can talk more about it. Uh, and, and there's a connection between the UCOR work and the higher ed work because I'm in both spaces is that we said at this point listing demands kind of doesn't make sense in, in if we haven't really figured out if you haven't done the work of building the power to 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 achieve those demands but what does make sense is to say and also i'll say like it in Aside the demand or the, the, the insistence that we must have, that we need to have fully funded public higher education and we need a federal, need a federal stimulus package to do that and debt-free and all of those things that we know, that there will also be sort of individual demands on different campuses. But what we do have are principles mm. that are guiding our organizing uh, and, and that we can take those principles and use them to engage conversations, uh, organizing conversations that to Anna's point earlier, like shift our perspective on what's possible. 
and, and disrupt and, uh, the, the neoliberal common sense of austerity. Uh, and that we need to bring that to people as a, as, a, as a space where we begin our organizing. And so I'll just say real quickly, because uh, I want to get to more time for conversation and hear from Chris, uh, our, our four principles are, or five, we're, they're still in development. Uh, public higher education is a necessary public good. Public higher education is a fundamental right. Uh, and to that needs to be debt free, uh, both student debt and college debt to Wall Street. Uh, all higher education workers must be protected at this moment. No job losses. Uh, you know, the impact of this must in their health and safety and their economic security. Public colleges and universities are protect, will be protected against closure and privatization. And higher education workers will determine the conditions under which school is reopened. Mm. And I just want to say, I think that last piece is the most radical piece. Uh, we have it in the UCOR principles as well, because what it says is that the workers will decide what the work is. So when we say reopen, we're not just saying reopen safety, PPEs, distancing. We're saying, what does it mean to be uh, an institution of public higher education. What does that look like? How do we talk to each other? What do we talk about? Uh, so we're working on using that, uh, developing that more fully, and then encouraging people to bring it out into their locals to have organizing conversations around which to build power. I'll stop there. That's, that's great. I mean, I, I think uh, that's really powerful on so many levels, uh, Barbara. Um, one point that stands out to me, um, well, first off, I mean, we talked about this last week with our, our conversation about nurses organizing, right? There's all this discussion at the national level. Does the president have the right to open, tell us when to go back to work, or do the governors, right? I mean, what if workers and educators stepped into that space and said, oh, by the way, actually, we have the power to say, right? That, that rift in some ways opens that space. But the question I want to put back to you and Ben and perhaps Anna as well, you've all I think alluded to, and then we'll bring in Chris to respond to maybe your responses here, um, is this idea that the educators themselves need to be educated, right? The higher educators that often think we're the, we're the ones who know actually have a lot to learn from K-12, right? Uh, I mean, and particularly the progressive caucuses that have led a kind of resurgence of militancy and activism and organizing at K-12, CORE and, and CTU and others. Um, so, I mean, what do you think, and I mean, you know, what do you think are the core lessons that are to be drawn right now um, from, you know, that, that higher educators and higher ed unions maybe haven't, you know, learned at least en masse in the way that we need to? Uh, what are the core, you know, would you say the, the, the lessons about, you know, what the difference, you know, what it really takes to build power in this moment? I mean, these principles sound terrific to me, but I wonder if there's some other things you could you could isolate on that. And then for Ben, after Barbara, I'd like to hear, you know, you mentioned we know the script of the, you know, the, of capital now, right? It seems like one thing we need to educate ourselves or others about is, well, what does that script look like? So I guess um, maybe a, a set of positive lessons and negative lessons uh, we can build on. Barbara, do you have, uh, I'm sure you have much you could say on this, but I wonder if there are a few things you would highlight uh, in terms of key lessons, whether from K-12 or otherwise, that higher ed folks need to get maybe more, get their heads around or get their feet around more. And Ben, what you would identify as 
as the script that we should be ready for. Uh, and so we can be proactive rather than reactive here. And then I'm sure you could, you could jump into, and then we'll bring in Chris Newfield. So um, the first, for the negative lessons, uh, I don't know if it's negative, but uh, you know, they don't share our interests. Uh, that the, 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 the people in power do not have the same goals that we have for the kind of world that we want and for the relationship of public higher education to building that world. Uh, and that's a, that's a hard one because, you know, one of the problem, you know, depending on where you are in public higher ed, classified staff, professional staff, or, or faculty, you may have class interests, very well have class interests, in aligning with the people who are screwing us over. Mm. Uh, and so one of the issues in organizing in public higher ed is, first of all, the hierarchy that already exists uh, that divides us very effectively because it, it reproduces the class hierarchy, but also like for those who've aspired to class interests to the elite, they don't give a shit about you. It's becoming really clear as you know in a separate group of of the those aspiring to elite the new york times had an article about the long lines for food uh food pantries in egg harbor new jersey uh which is like one of the wealthier areas of new jersey uh, but all these people lost their jobs and nobody capital doesn't give a shit about you right uh they don't need us anymore so that's the that's the hard lesson for people to learn. I've been working with Amazon tech workers, same kind of issue. Like they, they went into being tech workers for Amazon thinking that they were gonna be able to move, you know, that their, their class alliances were to the elite. And then Jeff Bezos says, fuck you, I'm gonna fire you because you care about climate change. Uh, hmm. but, but to that, I think the, one of the hardest lessons to learn, uh, there's two more real quick ones. One is in that fifth principle about we will determine what happens. I think we've been uh, for a long time uh, confused about where power lies uh, and encouraged to see power <clears throat> as something outside of ourselves, even when it appears to be in our interest. Uh, whether it's an elected official or an elected union person, uh, that power resides up. And our job is to sort of persuade those who actually have power to do something. Uh, the shift that we need to see that organizing encourages us to learn to experience is that we actually have the power to do things differently. Not simply the power to vote for others, or the power to persuade, but the power to build a different world. And in order to do that, my last point is that you really, and, and the, the West Virginia teachers really taught us that, and UTLA and Chicago. But UTLA and Chicago in particular, if we go back to them, you need a vision for the world that you want. And you need to be really clear about that vision. Uh, and bold, 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 bold about the vision. Uh, that we because the right wing's been bold about their bullshit vision uh we need to be bold about about our vision and i think people come to it people come to it 
uh, yeah. anyway, stop. Amen. I mean, that's part of what's inspired me about your, your leadership in Massachusetts for so long, Barbara. Uh, ben, briefly and, and, and kind of bullet point wise, could you, I mean, flesh out, I mean, Barbara laid out the principle I think is so important rather the, about capital not giving a shit about people yeah. uh, and not even feeling like it needs many people in the way that maybe it used to on some level um, without getting nostalgic. Uh, what do you think are some of the script points from Capital's notebook in this moment or from the kind of managerial notebook that we need to be armed with for that, uh, for this moment? I mean, in some ways, this is about what's the story they want to tell or they want to enact, you know, and, and, and what's, you know, and, 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 you know, what's your ideas about how to counter that briefly? And then I will, I promise, Chris Newfield, you're out there somewhere. We will bring you in. Uh, you're not on my screen right now, but we'll bring you in right after that. Uh, and Anna, we'll give you a word, too. And then Chris. So forgive me, I'm going to do what politicians do. I'm going to respond briefly and turn it since we have limited time. Good. Uh, I, I do think that people here and people who are tuned in have a sense of that script because we're already living it, right? Precarity is the script, okay? Um, and so it, mass indebtedness is part of the script. You know, moving to adjunct labor is a script. That's part of the script. Corporatization research is part of the script. Um, and austerity as a narrative is the script. Um, of course, capital's not unitary, so there are other uh, sort of there are other agendas for higher ed. But I think in terms of public higher ed in particular, I think um, they still need us. I mean, we are actually central institutions of of the new economy, right? So so we're they, we're going to be in a struggle with that, right? Uh, and I just want to sort of use uh, just a minute to talk about where we need to go a little bit more. Okay, um, I, I think that we need to recognize that um, that just even though we're coming into a crisis moment, a point of rupture, and also a point of opportunity uh, where there's great uncertainty, to some extent, the movement building that we have been doing constrains them to a certain, that we have, as was said, we have power. And there's also a lot of knowledge and power that we may not be aware of that we need to take an inventory of. We need to analyze the movement building process of the last 25 years so that we can collectively have a sense of what that power might be, right? And then in terms of where to go with it, I'll just say in terms of lessons that I and others have taken, uh, number one, we need to move towards a form of organizing that I call education unionism, and others do too, I think. But what that means for me is wall-to-wall, K through 12 and higher ed, all in the same organizations, okay? I don't mean uh, OBU, IWW style, you know, that and I've been a member of the IWW since I was a kid, I still pay dues, but I'm talking about it in terms in practical terms, right? We have to get organized together. That doesn't that means not just alliances, but that means organization. Okay. Secondly, we need to organize on a global basis. We have been doing that. Uh, I didn't mention, for example, the trinational efforts uh, in North America that we're going for a while, but we have to build globally. Third, we need to identify the class enemy. And that's something that we had done very effectively in Wisconsin over the years, recognizing that the Chamber of Commerce, the Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce, is the central organizing uh, political force for capital's agenda for all, for the entire public sector and for all working people that we are fighting against. That if they are isolated and immobilized, then, then a lot of the bad things that we're experiencing would go away, right? Um, so I could talk more about that if people are interested in another forum. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, uh, we do need to have not just a series of principles, but a detailed systemic program for the reconstitution of our institutions. We need to get into details and we need to be prepared to take ownership of the institutions and transform them. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that, Ben. Anna, I want to welcome you in uh, to this before we bring in Chris, because I know we've actually had quite a bit of back and forth on one possible demand or you might say strategic hill 
hill in this terrain, particularly around the issue of class size, right? I mean, I think Barbara's point about it being premature to, 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 to roll out demands in some context because we haven't done that base building is, is a very good one. But, but I, I, we have talked, and I, I know that uh, you have been doing some deep thinking about how class size at higher ed and perhaps at K-12 as well could be a particularly strategic of kind of place to wage a fight, assuming we're going to you know, sign off on reopening, whether it's in person or online. Could you say a little more about that? I mean, to, uh, I, I, know that, I know that you're prepared to. Um, uh, what is, how does class size factor into your kind of strategic, or I mean, what strategic nodes would you point to and where would class size, the battle over, the control over class size factor into your, uh, to that, to your thinking? Yeah, I mean, I think this, um, there's this sort of issue of power and building building power and recognizing where power is and organizing. And then there's how do you want to leverage that power, right? Um, and so um, class size is one, you know, option. It's one um, opening. It's one tactic. Um, what I have been working on, what I think other people are working on in different places is um, recognizing um, the pedagogical necessity of smaller class sizes, um, the uh, what might be the public health necessity of smaller class sizes, the making recompense for the kind of emergency remote instruction that went on, whether you were talking about high school students who are moving on to college in the fall or um, for existing college students who are going to try to continue. So sort of compensating for the disaster learning. Um, it's a labor preservation strategy because, you know, most um, class sizes and labor loads um, in what we call yield rates in terms of the fill of courses are very tightly controlled. Um, so like some of the ins and outs of um, budgets that then would amount to whether or not NTTB contracts are renewed, whether or not graduate students have extended funding um, are about how many classes you need to offer and um, advocating for or indeed enacting, which is what we're doing, uh, smaller class sizes is, um, a, is just one, um, you know, opening, is one tactic. Um, but I do just want to say something that maybe would be like a little bit heretical in this context, but I think it's really important that um, one of the things, you know, although we can't overstate the novelty of this emergency, um, that one of the things that might not be totally apparent is how um, different our opportunities for building power or for organizing or for making coalitions are. And that is to say that um, I don't know, and I am a die-hard union person. Like Stacey Davis Gates is the, you know, Chicago Teachers Union Vice President, is my president of my life. Like we, we have advocated over and over again in our Chicago Faculty Union, which is one of the strongest united NTTTT unions in the country um, for alliances with the CTU, for sympathy strikes with the CTU, for concerted actions, for thinking in this um, sort of uh, uh, industry-wide way that Ben was um, recommending um, about what are, what are public employees, what is public service, what is public good, and how is education about the, you know, the whole of the person um, across um, across age groups and so across labor and so so i really believe in in labor unions i really believe in um, labor organizing for higher ed but i have seen in the organizing calls that i've been participating in for the last month or so um a real um just kind of like block mentally um for people who are at schools that don't have unions whether those are public schools whether they're in right to work states, whether they're private schools because of yeshiva, what have you. And they just feel like they simply can't imagine what their power is because they don't have a union. And I'm not sure that um, the protections that we need for workers and the protections that we need for this industry and the, um, the good that is at stake in terms of the well-being of society and our integrality of our industry to um, the broad, you know, um, economic matrix of the United States. Like, I'm not sure that there's time for building labor units. I think we have to imagine other kinds of political action right now. And that involves um, recognizing that we actually might have some more in common, not only with K-12, 
K through 12 teachers, but with our leaders in our institutions, that our institutions are large, powerful moving bodies. And that if they acted concertedly, as I think we've seen in these like rhetorical performances of these op-eds um, this week that are demanding that our state function, right? <laughs> you know, demanding the uh, bare measures that are in effect in other countries um, for public health that would be conditions of possibility of reopening higher education, that we have to see those kinds of demands and those kinds of um, potentially, you know, um, power relations across our industry, across different kinds of institutions and with our own leaders or with our own administrators as like not shaking out along all the traditional lines. Like yeah. there's some different openings, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, hear productive, I hear a productive tension for us to think through, you know, as we continue this and we will go with higher ed a few minutes after six before turning towards May Day. So those of you who have a question you want to ask on this, don't feel too anxious, a little anxious, but not too anxious that we're going to talk out of your time here. Uh, I know a couple of us, except for Chris, I believe others can stay on after six. So Anna and Ben can stay on for at least a few more minutes uh, before uh, maybe even all the way to seven in some cases, Barbara, et cetera. Okay, um, so I'd like to bring in Chris Newfield to the conversation, who I think can also speak to this uh, point that Anna just raised or this hypothesis, right? That there may be opportunities to leverage alliances, you know, in unexpected places. I know Chris was, I heard Chris on the radio on another show a couple days ago, he, he appeared with, the president, I believe it was of Syracuse University, a private university, which raises another question here we haven't talked about is the relationship between public and private university organizing and constraint, clearly a, not an easy thing to sort. Chris, uh, Chris Newfield, for those who don't know, is professor of literature and American studies at University of California, Santa Barbara, where an institution he shares uh, with Ben Mansky. He's author of, among other books, uh, The Unmaking of the Public University, and most recently, The Great Mistake, a book I highly, highly recommend how we wrecked public universities and how we can fix them. Uh, Chris, I, I welcome you to respond to anything you've heard. You've certainly heard uh, you know, a wealth of perspectives already, but I know your work does speak quite directly and indirectly to the possibility of reframing conversations about the public university as a, as a, uh, a matter of public good that extends well beyond what we usually think of as the kind of community of interest, right? The, the no idea of a robust, the need to reframe and reclaim a notion of, of a tr what the truly public good would be and, and, and the way that that would connect everything from class size not, you know, to state funding. Uh, Chris, I welcome you into the conversation. Thanks for being here from California. Are you there? I'm here, yeah, I guess you can't see me. I'm here. I can, I can see, see you now as you're speaking. Yeah. Only those who make noise will be heard. Will yeah, be seen. No, I'm, I'm really glad to be here and I'm really glad to have heard the, um, the three folks before me. I basically agree with everything. I was just a couple of, um, three things that I would pull out. I mean, one is the, the anti-austerity theme, which I think is, is really important and something that I've certainly de devoted a lot of time to. Uh, it's just, it's disabling higher education as a, as a practice. And I think that's true for K through 12. And it's something that this is actually, and I think an opportunity to, um, a, a moment when we can deal with that. Um, the second has to do with organization, which Ben and, and Barbara talked about really well. And the third is a word that, Bill, uh, that Barbara used at the beginning, which is militants, which I think um, we, we insufficiently lack on the left, oddly enough, even though historically uh, we are associated with that. And I, you know, there's a, a lot of interesting discourse about uh, how it's been captured by the right, you know, Mitch McConnell being a you know, a great example of a, a, a really highly focused uh, Leninist of, of the 
legislative process, you know, where he sets the agenda and then Democrats react and he sets up a set of demands that, uh, that are larded with threatening withdrawal of support. Um, and they win repeatedly. So one of the things that I've been doing um, as part of this kind of thinking about how COVID could be part of a reconstruction of higher ed project is um, thinking of demands. And you know, I know I agree with Barbara's general point that the organization has to be there in a sense first. I mean, it's, to me, it's kind of a chicken or the egg and <clears throat> they feel, it feels like they have to be developed together. So here's a set that I've been thinking about that um, I would like us to think about bundling into a kind of a package that could be developed and, and advocated on the national scale that, that Ben was talking about. The first is, um, is a firing freeze in higher education. So that means uh, employees that, uh, of every kind, you know, from of tenured faculty, obviously, to NTT faculty, to every imaginable kind of staff person. In other words, there's just nobody gets thrown back into a non-existent labor market uh, for all of 2020 and can set deadlines. Um, the second is for the U.S. to shift um, what we're still calling wrongly sort of paycheck protection from the U.S. version of that, you know, which is kind of loans being given to businesses, uh, to the European version of that, which is that the government basically pays companies to keep everybody fully employed. Um, the third is... Uh, federal grants to state budgets, because it's really the austerity that, that hits education happens on the state level. And that people are already working on what the size of that would be. You know, it would be half a trillion dollars, but we've already spent many trillions of dollars just in the last couple of weeks. So it actually wouldn't be that much of an additional burden. A fourth would be um, government work projects. The executive director of the MLA, the Modern Languages Association, Paula Krebs, wrote a nice piece for the CNN website about bringing back works, progress administration uh, programs that cover a whole series of uh, um, activities, crafts, trades, um, artistic practices, intellectual practices, including writers uh, and music. Uh, well, those can be you know, upgraded and updated for uh, the present. And then the, um, I think the last thing, and for me, the thing that really holds it all together is um, you know, what I'm thinking of as a kind of a national higher education upgrade. Uh, I wrote a piece in the Chronicle a few weeks ago. It's kind of uh, where I was describing something I think of as co a free college plus. So it's debt free. It's basically zero tuition as the way you get to debt free. But it also includes a, a massive increase in instructional spending on the student side of the agenda. And so it would ripple into employment and allow for a kind of a de-adjunctification of uh, employment in higher education that we haven't seen ever because we've been going in the opposite direction. So the number I gave there was $20,000 per student per year in the very large number, I mean, it's thousands of public colleges and, and uh, universities that spend quite a bit less than that, more like five or 6,000. So it would be basically a, a tripling of, the, of, of what we spend on students, which again would, would uh, ramify on the employment sector. So in a nutshell, I think we, that costs an extra, uh, I don't know, 100 billion or so a year. So it would kind of it would more or less double um, 
more than double what we spend on higher education a year now, but it's cheap <laughs> considering what we would get for it. And I think to put it together with these other elements, we would come up well on the left with a project that's about, I don't know, a trillion dollars or so over the next eight months, but it would do a heck of a lot more good than the even more expensive packages that Congress has been passing so far. Yeah, thanks for that, Chris. I mean, again, you return us to the kind of that dialectic of vision and organizing, right? I mean, the idea that, you know, I mean, we need to organize to have the power. I mean, the idea, some people would hear what you just said, and actually the, the radio host you were talking with the other day were saying this, what world are you talking about, right? They're talking about 20%, you know, or more cuts. I think we just heard a rumor today in Massachusetts, we may be dealing with that. That's not confirmed, but 12 to 20% cut. So one question that emerges here is where is, how are we gonna build the power to make those sorts of millet demands sound like something other than pie in the sky, but the other, but I think, how can we really build power without a bold and robust vision that can unite people and, and make them feel that it's worth their time and energy at, despite the exhaustion, right? And I, that's not really a question so much as just a reflection. And I think what you've said and what Barbara said and others really works powerfully together. Um, I wanna welcome in folks that are on the phone or who have been listening so patiently to this conversation. Uh, I understand from my uh, producers from Seren and uh, Tim, we may have some people who are ready to ask some questions. Uh, Seren, if you could remind me of who those folks are or just speak yourself and invite them to speak. We will demute you uh, when you're ready. Fran, I believe, is on the list here. And then, of course, we will give the guest a chance to respond to the things that have been said. But let's see if we can hear a few. We have Fran, who's ready. I think uh, we, we have a question about public versus private organizing and, and institutions. Anyone else who's ready to go? Maybe we could take a couple questions at once. It sounds like Ben wants to get on the stack. So maybe we'll go Fran and then Ben, if you're ready to speak. I know we see Brett Benjamin on the list too. I'd love to hear your, your thoughts, Brett. Uh, Brett uh, let's go, Fran first. Hi, yeah, thank you all for your comments. Um, and I raised this in the chat when, uh, before anybody had mentioned anything about private institutions. <laughs> so thank you um, for your comments on those things, Joe and, and Anna. Um, I'm at a small private liberal arts college. We are not unionized. We have you know, a small AAUP advocacy chapter. Um, it's, it's been, I mean, we've been facing austerity cuts that predate the pandemic by several years. Um, and so, I mean, you know, it's, it's, I'm just wondering if people could speak to um, other insights of things that might be different and and I'm wondering if anybody else in this group on the ch on the call is from a private institution. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we're not in a position to be appealing to the state for funding. Um, so although, you know, as a leftist, I support all those demands and believe in it, I, it's not immediately relevant to our work situation. Um, but, you know, so anything that people could comment on that would be helpful for us and if there are others Okay, so it raises both the big picture question of public versus, you know, private organizing, you're organizing at non-unionized workplaces, but also just the nuts and bolts of what could be done. I mean, friends, I don't, you don't want to name your institution, or you can if you want, you don't have to, um, <laughs> right? Like, advice for her. Uh, let's take a, one more question from Ben Stork, and then we will, we will kick those two back to, to the group. <clears throat> Thank you all. Um, thanks for all these great... Uh, this really great conversation and thanks joseph for organizing these um, it's really awesome um now i'm going to be a jerk 
um, so I, I'm, uh, I'm in my last quarter as an adjunct at Seattle University. Um, we had a five-year uh, union fight that we won every legal challenge, and yet the university won by continuously outspending us and being willing to take us all the way to the Supreme Court, um, which, of course, they did. The, the same case went through for Duquesne, um, and they did indeed lose, um, uh, adding additional challenge for religious institutions to organize. And this is where my jerky question comes in. I'm really unclear, uh, and I'm gonna sound unfortunately like Matt Stoller, which is something I never really wanna do, but to ask, we keep using the word organizing like it's a shibboleth. Like, what do we mean by organize? Because on the ground, I do not find that there's a clear pathway forward. The standard union model does not work in higher ed, or at least from my experience. Um, what I saw was a union infrastructure that was incapable of dealing with our workplace, um, <clears throat> that was patronizing towards those they were trying to organize, um, often dismissive as though we are actually not workers, even as they're telling us we are workers, um, <clears throat> and that much of the energy was directed towards precisely the kind of appeals to the state that we're talking about now as either principles or demands. I'm not sure exactly what the distinction is there. So what I really wanna know is what do we mean by this word organizing? Um, and the last part I'll, I'll end with, and this is much more higher ed focused and why I'm, I'm not <clears throat> as convinced by the idea of the big union model um, in terms of joining with uh, K through 12, but also with TT and TT unions. Um, because higher ed has a particular hierarchy in place. Um, it can both be a block to union organizing, and once we have unions in place, it can produce really poor effects. I mean, if we look at what happened at CUNY, right, um, <clears throat> what we've seen is that that strike resulted in certain wins, but serious dissatisfaction from non-tenure track faculty who felt like they were shut out of the process, who are the most precarious. So those power dynamics are in place. And so when we say organizing, I, I really love to hear ideas about what specifically that looks like in our workplace, because I, I feel as though it is a sort of continuous thing we say without ever having to define what it means. So I'll end my jerky question, no, but I think y'all are the people to ask about this. No, I think clarity on terms, and, and, and I think that's a very productive, and those two questions I think are productive together, right? They're, they're both asking, how do we organize? What does it mean to organize? And, and then how to organize in a particular context where there isn't a union, and in this con in organizing might even be more open as what that could mean. Uh, who wants to take it first? Uh, we, you know, from our from our group, Chris has has a finger up. Uh, Barbara, you're not on my screen right now. I, I'm sure you could talk to this. My, my finger was up, but I'll go ahead, okay. Chris, and I'll Chris, come back in really, And then really we'll take another, a couple questions. I'm sure everybody. This is we could go all day. We could do a whole show on this. Okay, go ahead, Chris. Uh, I just want to say quickly to Fran. Um, private universities and colleges do get uh, federal fund and public funds, and you know, in terms of uh, loan guarantees, Pell Grants, et cetera. So there's already a precedent that I would like to massively expand. In other words, uh, private universities would also be available for bailouts, but rather than seeing it as a bailout, I think it would be better to see it as a kind of an upgrade or a reconstructive program in which um, private colleges, which are you know an essential part of the overall higher ed ecosystem, are supported to the extent that they need them. So possibly yours, certainly a place like Hampshire College, which is you know, in, an indispensable part of that 
structure of colleges and universities in Massachusetts and so on. So would what work, you know, what I think we need to talk about is the way that privates and publics can work together better to, to develop a fuller sort of public tax base framework for the whole ensemble. That's great. I'd love to get into that more. Barbara, you want to speak to this? And Ben has indicated the other, uh, Ben Mansky would like to speak to this as well. I, I mean, I, Ben, I don't think it's a, it's a ridiculous question. I think it's a, I was actually going to go there uh, when, uh, to talk about sort of, and, and it's part of why I don't, I think we have to really think about what it means to say we have demands, which is that what organizing is, is workers getting together to talk to each other, to identify issues that are important to them, uh, and th that's organizing at its core, uh, using their collective power, but also their collective wisdom. Uh, and I say solve problems specifically because workers usually know what needs to happen to fix a problem. Uh, that, 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 and, and then they need to organize to say, okay, now let's figure out where we're going to leverage. Um, I think, I agree with you that I think we use the word organizing without actually breaking it down to the work that has to happen, where people have to first experience themselves taking action collectively in, in or at, at, a, at a local intimate level before we can invite them to bust austerity. Uh, one of the things that the vice president of the MTA was just saying, he was at a higher ed meeting and everybody was saying like, already there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. They're coming at us. Like we just got to figure out how to, you know, have preserve as many positions as we can. Uh, be, because it, it's not, that's not simply a failure of imagination. It's a failure of experience that the, the, what organizing is, is, is giving ourselves the opportunity to experience the power that we have when we act collectively. And you don't do that by calling for a general strike. <laughs> uh, you do that by, you know, some great examples um, in uh, uh, the university, part of the uh, Pennsylvania State University system, uh, where they, you know, started to build the power of the union, and I want to get to your union question as well, by organizing around the mold in the buildings. And that was a problem that they could solve. And that was a problem that they could organize uh, not only the, the faculty union, but the classified staff union uh, to participate in, and the students to do that. And it is through engaging in the struggle that people change their consciousness. They don't, and, and, and are then ready to take on other, uh, other fights. And I think on the left, we, we skip over those struggles, those initial struggles, and we skip over giving people opportunities to really engage a struggle and win through collective action. Do, are unions like totally fucked up spaces? Absolutely. And we could, you know, talk about the ways that unions have been compromised for decades now, partly because they understand their power to be making a deal in a back room somewhere with the people who they see having power. Uh, certainly when I was president, I was invited to do that on a regular basis. Come on in the room, Barbara, and we'll figure it out. 
Uh, and it was only because I came out of a caucus and because I come out of consciousness uh, that I could hold to know it's actually us working together. We're going to solve the problem. And then you politicians, you're going to do what we've organized to do. Uh, so that's what organizing is. And, and we have to break it down. And we have to in, in bring people in to solve problems through collective action uh, together. Now we're on Corona time. So now we have to do that really, really fast. But we can't miss any steps. And I just want to say real quickly, the friend, uh, Chris mentioned Hampshire College. Um, first of all, yes, you know, Harvard was getting eight and a half uh, million dollars. Uh, so uh, you're not getting it because you're at, you don't have a $44 million uh, dollar, uh, um, investment account, uh, but, um, or billion, whatever it is. Uh, yeah. Hampshire College is a great example, you know, because they were going to close Hampshire College. Um, and we organize. To your point, what does organizing look like, Ben? It was students, classified staff, professional staff, faculty, in a room together. I was with them saying, okay, what do we want? How are we going to get it? Who has the power to give it to us? And what are the steps we're going to take to win that? Uh, that's what organizing is. You don't need a union to do that. And even when you have a union, you frequently have to do that because the union won't. The lesson of the Chicago Teachers uh, Union and core be the union that you want your union to be. Don't wait for your union to be that union. Great. Ben Mansky, do you have something you want to add to that, to sure. the response? Sure, just to my brother, Ben, um, I, I really appreciate you bringing that forward. Um, and I want to clarify a couple things. One, when I'm talking about wall-to-wall, -wall, I'm not just talking about across the sector, but also across the campus. So and when you're talking about hierarchies of power, those also certainly exist between undergrads, blue-collar workers, white-collar grad students, different types of grad students in different departments, et cetera, right? So those are the challenges of organizing that I can tell you have had uh, difficult and maybe rich, but also painful experiences with. We have to deal with those, right? So the project to me is how do we deal with them, right? Um, and there are various models we can look to. There are citywide efforts, Chicago, Philadelphia come to mind for me. Uh, at Wisconsin, we had a UW Federation of Labor. So the Student Association, the Undergrad and Grad Student Association declared itself a union and federated and funded a standing federation and a labor center on campus, right? That can be an important way to do it. So we need to look at those models. Um, and also when I was talking about disorganization, I guess what I was really talking about is defunding. I'm mean, just the reality is, is that you, you know, the, the campus movements have been eviscerated by the larger movement. I, I'm sorry, I can't put it in, I, I can put it more elegantly, but, but for, for decades, the student organizations in particular relied upon as sources of resources. And the seed cordon was eaten up. Um, labor unions put resources into bringing undergrads out, entire generations, people on, on the mid of Gen X, you know, went into the labor movement, right? But labor did not put back in to campus organizing for campus organizing's sake, right? In the same way. So we need to organize on behalf of our sector, right? And that means we need to get resources, money from outside in. And we need to raise a hue and cry and say, God damn it, put resources into campus organizing again, right? So that's what I was referring to. And then finally on the private public, I'm gonna invoke the spirits of Richard Grossman, Ward Morehouse, and Jane Ann Morris, who are not here with us anymore. There's no such thing as a private college or university. 
they're all chartered under the laws of our states and they have they are you know cement and they are brick and they cannot move easily and we can change the statutory codes and redefine what a pro private institution is so that's another thing that we should think about here. yeah powerful point I, it, you call to mind for me Ben a great piece I recommend especially Boston-based folks folks but others also read it was in dig Boston authored by a UMass Boston alum Jason Pramas P-R-A-M-S P-R-A-M-A-S uh, um, called uh, UMass Cambridge question mark referring to Harvard in the midst of their uh, their kind of failure to play ball with their uh, you know with their with one of their unions at that moment I think it was food food workers uh, or campus workers non non faculty uh, and basically pointing out all the money that flows into Harvard from the state and from the federal government and right and saying why aren't we putting conditions on this right these tax exempt institutions right who who are actually getting more research dollars from the federal government than the UMass system combined right so that just kind of echoes uh, Ben's point um, or builds on it in a concrete way. I encourage people to check that piece out. I hope I hope to have Jason on here at some point as well. Uh, I'm not seeing anyone clamoring in the chat box for a question right now, though I'm sure there are really great comments uh, that people could make. I uh, just one more call for anyone who would like to ask a specific question on higher ed. I mean, obviously we don't need to have a schematic uh, mechanical relationship between hour one or hour one and 15 minutes and our last 45 minutes, but we do have some other guests on that have joined us in the last few minutes. We should have uh, two additional guests I'd like to bring into the conversation. Um, but be, I mean, does anybody have, um, so maybe I'll hold off right now, unless, and someone on the, the guest list here is uh, clamoring for a final word. Anna, we haven't heard from you in a while. Do you want to say uh, one minute, comment anything that's been said on the organized question? I think it's an incredibly hard question, um, but so Barbara's point about like where can people come together and find efficacy, I just think that um, it might not be that the old answers are the same in, um, in pandemic time. So um, what would it mean for an institution to be effective in um, lobbying at state or for um, a state to be effective in lobbying the federal government to behave, to do the right thing? Like there are other kind of domains of efficacy or of cross industry solidarity across institutional solidarity but I don't know that they look the same as like um, some, you know workplace victories in terms of um, giving people that experience um, and I did just want to say that like um, Joe and I talked about this a little bit maybe people will talk about it later but the the kind of activism around the um, CARES Act or the labor struggles around the CARES Act I think that there's a lot of confusion about how that money is allotted and how much of it is discretionary and how little of it is discretionary so it's not that Harvard like gets eight million dollars um, of CARES Act funding because they're Harvard. It's because they have that percentage of Pell eligible students. The money was for Pell students and that means that it's not very available for uh, political determination, you know, because it's for um, paying the students who um, have been displaced. It's for covering their causes, for refunding their tuition. It's, um, so uh, the, I just don't know that it's like the, the, that CARES is the um, best tactic. I think the uh, advocacy of the kind that Chris is articulating for, you know, much more adequate higher ed specific support is, is, is a good tactic. Yeah, I mean, the word organize, as I understand it, comes actually from the notion of an organ, the need to build organs, actually, to have power and capacity, right? I mean, we're thinking a lot about organs failing, failing all over the place, right, with the coronavirus. 
Um, I mean, we maybe need to be cyborgs, right? Building, you know, in this in the cyber age, like what are the kinds of organs that we need to actually get these functions done? Some of them are classical and some of them are new. I'd like to, you know, speaking of educators needing to be or organized, I'd like to bring a couple of folks into the conversation who, uh, who responded to the call for a, a pre-Mayday organizing conversation. Uh, we have with us on the, the phone two folks that have not yet spoken. We have Adam Kaczynski, who is the president of IUE Local 201, representing GE workers in Lynn, Massachusetts. Actually, both our new added speakers here are from Lynn, Massachusetts. Um, Adam, uh, Adam's Union, Local 201, you may have heard about. They were, they were the GE workers who were participating in a sick out, sometimes reported, Adam may clarify, misreported as a formal walkout, but nonetheless, a sick out to call out GE's lack of uh, protective equipment for their workers, and also part of the national GE campaign to pressure the company and the government to, to produce ventilators, right? Taking a step we, we don't often hear worker organizing that's actually calling on the state or calling on, you know, trying to dictate what or, you know, demand what, not only what, how it thinks should be produced or how much people should be paid, but what actually should be produced in light of the acute need of COVID-19. So Adam uh, Kaczynski, Adam, are you there? Yeah. Great, Adam, so glad to have you. I'm gonna also just quickly introduce Jonathan Feinberg, also I believe works sometimes with Adam up in, in Lynn through the New Lynn Coalition. Jonathan Feinberg is the director of organizing for the New Lynn Coalition, as well as member of the Retail Wholesale Department Store Union uh, in Danvers, Massachusetts, that's the RWDSU, uh, specifically in the gu uh, Guitar Center of Danvers, Massachusetts, where, where he works. Jonathan, are you on the phone or are you on the computer? Yeah, hey, I'm here. Nice to see hey, you. Hey, Jonathan, great. So, Jonathan, uh, I believe Adam may have, Adam, our, I was understanding you may have limited time to be with us uh, today. Uh, so why don't we go to you down to 6.30, unfortunately. 6.30, all right. So we'll definitely go to you first, Adam. Sorry to be late. Um, academic disease. Uh, can you uh, please uh, give us a little update on what the kind of work y'all have been doing at IUE uh, Local 201 and across the country? Uh, if you could lay out how things look to you in terms from the standpoint, what does organizing mean to you right now in terms of the challenges workers are facing and the opportunities of this moment, um, and uh, both locally in Lynn and and nationally or internationally and beyond. I just thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, it was really interesting to hear about the issues in higher ed for me too. I appreciate that. I wish I could get on a little sooner. Uh, so we've been uh fighting with the company since early march uh over what we call our 5s pandemic platform uh that's supplies sanitation six feet of social distance increased sick time and in serving the public which includes the the demand to make life-saving ventilators in the iuege supply chain um, we have shops they announced 10 percent cuts in march then 50 percent cuts in aviation including layoffs um, there's no impact uh, anticipated for Lynn, where, where I work, which is about 1,260 members, um, but they are across the IUE GE supply chain. So we're saying there's capacity in our plant, there's more than enough capacity in these other plants that you're closing, that you're uh, laying off. They actually just announced another closing in Dallas, uh, so they'll act, we'll, you'll see some action uh, soon around that. Um, so we're saying in, in a time like this, the COVID-19, you have advanced manufacturing workers. We already have a dwindled supply. We already manufacture so many things because of the race to the bottom in other places with more exploitable labor. Uh, 
it's why we have PPE shortages because like my understanding is half of it was shipped to Wuhan, China uh, because of their poor labor standards. And that's why we don't have a domestic market for it. So we're saying during this time, do not lose skilled manufacturing workers, put these union workers to work, building these ventilators that society desperately needs right now. Um, and, and it's also about the, you know, the future of our work in the manufacturing sector. Uh, it's, it's, we feel it's, obviously it's a crucial sector that's, that's been destroyed. Um, but we're still here and we're not going to go down without a fight. So uh, we've been kind of merging the, the ever-present, everyday health and safety issues with this larger campaign uh, to fight over the future of our work. Um, so organizing to us, to me, has been in the most recent period uh, very much about survival and not very pure at all. But we've been doing our best uh, as far as defending um, our people on the floor. I mean, we've, we've made some progress since we kicked off our 5S campaign. Uh, we got the temperature checks established. Um, we're getting reports on the order levels of the PPE and so forth, but we, it's a large factory. Things break down. We still lack consistent access to PPE on a regular basis. Um, and we're putting out fires left and right, just trying to keep people uh, safe, keep each other safe. Um, but we're, we're pairing that with the big picture uh, about the future of our union and honestly a fight that we've been in since before I was born. So um, that's what we've been up to in Lynn. And now nationally, um, the IUECWA is leading this campaign around ventilator work. All the GE shops are now uh, participating and uh, it's growing and it's getting bigger. And now we're demanding, uh, well, not demanding, I appreciate what Barbara said about demands and what we consider demands. But we are, we are uh, putting to President Trump that he should invoke the DPA, the Defense Production Act, uh, in order to put, you know, American workers to work manufacturing PPE and ventilators. So um, you'll see some coordinated actions around that among GE workers uh, in the coming in the coming days. And um, if people are interested in support, um, I'll try to throw in the chat. But we have a couple of petitions out. One. Um, around the Trump, asking Trump to demand to, or to invoke the DPA and uh, have GE build ventilators in uh, these shops that have all this excess capacity. And we have another one uh, showing support for workers in Lynn around our 5S campaign and, the, and our safety and sanitation conditions in the plant. So appreciate uh, having me on. Yeah, thank you for being here, Adam. And, and I would love to give you one more question before you may have to go. I know you're, you're very busy with the, the work of being a president of this local. Um, how could you say a little more about the how the action act the action that kind of put y'all on the you know the, the national international you know media spotlight right I know you had some thoughts about that both about how that was represented that may not have been completely accurate in some as you said some kind of some romanticizing in the media in some places but I thought it was an interesting also I mean maybe it's it's a case lesson and like how did that organizing actually develop right I mean what became that that action that 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 changed the national conversation or at least enabled one about some of these issues, uh, you know, how did that actually go down? And what, as, a, as an organizer here, what, what have been some of the strategic issues that you've been dealing with in terms of threading that needle between, you know, uh, the various pressures you're under? Uh, could you speak a little more about that specific, the local uh, dynamics of how that unfolded and maybe lessons that can be drawn from it? Yeah. So the first lesson uh, isn't one that I needed to learn again. I was a steward up until a year and a half ago. Uh, which is that this came from the floor. We were getting nowhere bargaining uh, around our safety conditions uh, with upper management. They said everything's fine. 
uh, CDC recommendations are just that, they're recommendations and we'll do the baseline uh, that we need to do to keep, keep pumping out the work. Um, but what ended up developing is that there was started to become presumed cases in buildings. Uh, and we had been pressuring them for a command center and a response to this kind of thing that had not yet developed. So uh, Stewart had, uh, in a building in March had uh, called the hall and said, listen, this, we got reason to believe that this person's been at work all week and there's someone in his household with uh, COVID-19. So he pulled his coworkers and brought them out to the parking lot. We have something uh, that a lot of people have uh, either through OSHA or in their contract, which is the right to stop work when you don't feel safe. So he invoked what we call the river, river work safety understanding, got his group outside. Uh, the union officers got down about 10, 15 minutes later, cleared the rest of the building, got everybody out to the parking lot. And we said, we're gonna go in there with them and we're gonna try to figure out uh, the next steps, you know, to keep everybody safe. We went in there and we demanded that everybody be sent home for two weeks with pay. Um, the company obviously wasn't gonna have that. They were concerned about setting a precedent. And, um, and so we walked away from that meeting after making our best arguments with that, and that steward making his best arguments uh, for his, his group and his family. And we went back and we told the, the building uh, what it went down, that the company had, had agreed by the end of it to have the whole building cleaned from wall to wall with electrostatic discharge spray, uh, which was one of the things that we've wanted and still want on a more regular basis. Um, but that was it. And the company had said about two weeks prior that if you do not feel safe here during the COVID-19 epidemic, you are free to use your five state minimum sick days. Hmm. So uh, what has ended up happening in buildings where these presumed exposures are is that people have made the decision to use those uh, sick days when they do not feel safe. And oftentimes that comes after uh, a report of a, of a potential exposure. Um, so one of the things that uh, we, we felt uh, could guide that was some OSHA language that I cannot remember off the top of my head right now, but around the right to refuse, refuse work that's unsafe. Um, so we made sure our members knew about that and we publicized that to the membership um, and said, look, the company's already told you what to do. If you don't feel safe, you gotta go. And so we've had, we've, that kicked off, uh, that was a Friday. And then by Monday, we were in front of the plant in the G headquarters, uh, protesting our, our working conditions and uh, fighting for the, the ventilator work. That's very helpful. And so you build it as a sick out, right? Rather than as a walkout per se, in order to kind of limit it. I, mean, the I don't know what you want me to tell you. People call in sick. Yeah. Yeah, right. There you go. People called in sick. So, so there's, there's a strategic point is there's a tactical, a very tactical nuance to what, you know, what is also a very, you know, kind of potentially symbolic and, and militant action, right? Which I really appreciate that, that detail, which, which was, I was not, a, not understanding before. Um, does anybody have a, a question for Adam uh, before, for Kaz, before we lose him right now, assuming he does have to step off in a couple minutes before we go to John, Jonathan Feinberg? Okay, Kaz, what we'll do, we'll put all the calls you've mentioned, the, the links to the petition. I think Seren has already put them in the chat box. We will also put them on the uh, Shelter and Solidarity Facebook page. 
um, and website and uh, include them in our next email to our growing list of subscribers to the show. Uh, and so, you know, solidarity to you. You know, thank, thanks for your inspiration of your struggle. You know, uh, Righteous May Day. And, uh, you know, I hope you all can keep safe. And just thank you for, uh, you know, for standing up for working people uh, more broadly. Thanks, Joe. Good to see right. all y'all. Okay, see you later. Take care. Uh, taking Adam's place, also another Lynn-based organizer, uh, picking up where Adam left off, and also working as the director of the New Lynn Coalition, we have Jonathan Feinberg. Jonathan, are you there? Hey, Joe, how's it going? Great, Jonathan, so good to, to see you as well as hear you. I see a little prolata something on your shirt there. It's inspiring. You actually bring us acutely and with a great backdrop to May Day per se. I understand that the, the New Lynn Coalition, which has been organizing for a long time, not just recently in COVID, has some real specific, some concrete plans for, for May Day organizing and beyond. Uh, and I wondered if you could, you could maybe uh, clue us in on that maybe tell us a little bit about you the work you do with the may uh, with the rather with the new lynn coalition what motivates that work and then if you'd like to talk a little bit more specifically about what y'all have planned for tomorrow what that means and and how that fits into your overall kind of vision and and strategy for defending uh workers and communities in this moment uh sure thing joe thanks i'm gonna start with just a quick visual plug for those of you who are watching uh we're doing a mayday zoom Zoom radio station uh, in a small motorcade through the city of Lynn. Um, tomorrow, we invite everyone to, to join in. You can uh, dial in through Zoom. We have a landing page with some more information, uh, bit.ly.com slash Lynn Mayday. Uh, all right, now that that part's done. Great, we'll put uh, that out on our website too. Yeah, take it away. Thanks, yeah, so, um, the New Lynn Coalition started in 2011 uh, as sort of an attempt to formalize a couple decades of work between uh, community and labor, <clears throat> excuse me, community and labor organizations. Um, there have been a lot of shared campaigns and it reached a point where people realized we're stronger together than we are on our own. So why not build a coalition? And as opposed to most of the coalitions that we see, we're not an issue-based coalition, we're a power building coalition. So from the outset, we are here, it's in our mission statement to build power for working class people. Uh, when we talk about the working class, we mean pretty much anybody who doesn't have total control over their job, they're not the boss of anybody. You know, you miss a couple of paychecks, you're gonna be tight. And it's a vast majority of us, really, and it always has been. Um, so recognizing that uh, and seeing a need to build coalition in order to build power, uh, the New England Coalition sort of formed around that. Um, we try to build a core of uh, press nationality and working class people to lead a broad-based coalition. Um, we do that through struggling for the public narrative and public campaigns, things like May Day. Um, also through making transformative demands. We've had a lot of success with for all framing. Um, and we do our best to put ourselves in positions of governing power. Um, and I don't mean necessarily elected power, but there's a lot of boards, there's a lot of projects that are happening in the city, and we try to position ourselves whenever possible uh, so that those are advantageous and accountable to us. Um, yeah, so we were in the middle of a big housing campaign, and then as Barbara so uh, eloquently put it, and then the pandemic hit, and now we've had to do a pretty significant shift in our organizing work. Um, 
we'd made actually some pretty significant momentum on a really transformative housing project that could have made a huge impact in our city before this. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been a struggle to, to adjust in this new time. Organizing generally involves being in a, in a room with a group of people, talking to them about their interests and moving forward together. Uh, you have different age groups. We don't, half of the city of Lynn doesn't have internet. We have 63, I think last I heard, different languages in the Lynn public school system. Um, we're having a very difficult time doing real broad-based outreach. And that's actually what inspired the Zoom radio station. Uh, we're going to have like a sound truck going through the city. We're trying to promote it online as best we can. Uh, no one's going to stores really, so you can't put them there. Um, and on the subject of narrative, you know, uh, right now is a moment where people really want, uh, the, the people broadly, not movement people necessarily, people want, there's, there's an energy around celebrating frontline workers, right? That, that I think garbage personally, but that, that hero narrative uh, really struck a, a chord for a lot of people. Um, so there's a lot of thank you parades and things like that. So we're trying to tap into some of that energy and direct it towards more transformative demands. Um, we know that this crisis you know, presents its own challenges, but um, some of the issues that are being hit hardest in this moment are the issues that we've been organizing around for decades. Issues like housing, issues like living wages, issues like healthcare, uh, uh, like having safe communities for immigrants and uh, working people. Um, and Mayday is really an opportunity for us to bring those together, uh, try to celebrate our own power, whatever little that may be, or however much that may be, hopefully. Uh, and we're hoping that this positions us better uh, for when we hit the economic recovery. And that's really the part that we're trying to figure out. But when you're in an organization that's a uh, I call a sort of a grass tops organization. It's, it's difficult to pivot really quickly. We meet monthly, you know? All of our meetings now have four or five points of contact with each person before the meeting happens. There's some real significant uh, drains that this has presented on our capacity to organize. Um, but I think through struggling through this together and actually having some successes when we pull off this Mayday thing, I mean, we did this in less than two weeks. so. <laughs> When we actually pull this off tomorrow, uh, we're all gonna feel really good about it and it's gonna help propel us forward and move into the next fight and into the next fight. Uh, so we can keep stacking up victories, keep stacking up notoriety, and then we'll eventually, when we hit the economic recovery, be in a better position uh, to win some of the, the changes that we need to see. Uh, you're muted, Joe. Thank you, the host can be muted too. Um, so, uh, yeah, thank you for that, Jonathan. I mean, I think, I mean, re reflecting back on Barbara's comment earlier about how, you know, the left has, you didn't say this, Barbara, but I, I heard it in what you said, I'm saying it, that there is a kind of tradition on the left that like every May Day, there's like a declaration for a general strike or something, right? And, and it doesn't necessarily go, it's, you know, it, there's a gap between, let's say, the utopian vision of the, of the words and, and the work on the ground. I, I appreciate this, the very groundedness of what you're giving us here. And I know we have at least one person on the chat box who wanted to ask a question kind of about this which I'd like to flag for you, um, it, you know, and then, and then I'll go back to Ben for a little more context about Mayday more broadly. The, the kind of return of Mayday in the United States is a kind of higher profile day of action, right, over the last, you know, certain period. Um, you know, what, what are you all doing? I mean, uh, and what, and other people who are on the call too, I mean, what are, I mean, actually, yeah, let's say we have, it's Julia Leisinger on the, on the line. I think it might be Elaine though. Is it Elaine? Are you there? It's actually Julia. Julia, okay, Julia sorry. <laughs> sorry, I, I was talking with Elaine earlier. Uh, great, let's hear, the, let's hear the question or ask the question. 
so yeah, so I, you know, I mean, I think every time we're talking about organizing anything, right, it's about mobilizing other people and politicizing other people and getting those people to be with us in these actions, whatever they are. Like, you know, whether we're calling for a general strike or whether we're talking about mold in a building or, or anything, you know, just the smallest things. Um, and obviously, you know, we are in a situation because of safety in which we can't meet new people, kind of, you know, like this is, you know, I, I actually work, not right now, but like I work in retail where I get to meet like hundreds I, I dislike actually, you know, but like, but really meeting strangers to talk to them and to hear their stories and, um, and, you know, and to really stay humble about what the, the working class is doing right now, just every day. Um, so anyhow, I mean, I, I was wondering, I was wondering what people are proposing and what people are doing to try to actually, like, I'm guessing, build their networks and um, from the people that they know so that they can start being able to have conversations, maybe in platforms like this, maybe in other ones, I don't know, so that they can start politicizing other, other people. Yeah. So how to build the network in a time of COVID pandemic and sheltering in place? I mean, my answer to that question is you're looking at it, right? I mean, it's just to some degree trying to create this show, not just as a product, but as a network and as a living thing that, you know, I mean, nice to meet you. Um, <laughs> but I'd like to kick that over to everyone, you know, to, to, to Ben, Anna, Barbara, uh, to, to Jonathan, uh, what, what are folks doing? Or frankly, what are we also struggling with? I mean, I feel like if we can identify the concrete obstacles then we were one step towards overcoming them as well. But particularly, I think helpful uh, specifics would be good here. Who would like to take that or start that response? I'm not, it's a challenging question. I, I see Jonathan. I think like going. Barbara, so yeah, okay, go ahead. Um, so first off, it's nice to see another retail worker on here. Uh, organizing is not a full-time job for me. I, uh, I also work at a guitar center uh, where I was part of the, the union organizing drive, uh, which was successful, thankfully. Um, that was a whole fun story about power building, too. We could talk about that another time. Um, and it is, I, it's very hard to meet new people. It's very hard to get the word out right now uh, in a context where people have disparate levels of access to the internet. Um, you're not supposed to go meet people, so it's hard to get people's phone numbers. There's been a lot of mutual aid work happening in Lynn. Um, it's not really consolidated at all, uh, so it's hard to talk about that in terms of building power in the longer term. Um, but it does raise an interesting question about uh, providing basic need as a way to organize, right? This is something that the Black Panthers, for example, did very well with the Breakfast Program, right? It wasn't just meeting community need, it was also building trust. And it was also moving their message forward into new hands. Um, so not, I'm not trying to equate us to the Black Panthers, I wish, but uh, we are trying right now to uh, get a, a resource guide, um, a printout resource guide. Everything else that's been put out so far in the city of Lynn is almost exclusively online. Uh, we have a very, I'm gonna be not crude and just say uh, inept and malfunctioning city government. Um, but we're trying to do a, uh, uh, food delivery program, uh, for primarily undocumented families who can't get out and are not receiving any of these benefits. Um, and, uh, through that, we're trying to distribute a resource guide. It's the only printed one that we are aware of right now. And we've seen some success through that. People have gotten back to us. 
Um, but part of the strength of the work that we do, and I think part of the importance of building coalition, is that any one organization has their membership, right? Uh, and it's really hard to get 13, 14, for us, 14 different organizations together around a table uh, to agree to the same thing. But for something like Mayday, you know, the call is for each representative of our, to our organization to reach back to their membership. That's their membership to tell their friends. And, you know, we're probably going to get the usual suspects, but if we get the usual suspects at a time like this, I think that's actually pretty good. Um, and again, part of it is also about building the narrative in the long term. You win people when you win. Thank you, Jonathan. I think we have Barbara Mataloni will speak to this and then Ben, ben Mansky. Uh, Barbara? Uh, thanks. Yeah, um, I think Jonathan makes a really good point about mutual aid societies uh, groups and how to at really use those as ways uh, to strengthen relationships uh, that, that go, um, what is the word I want to use? That, that, that that are that are mutual, <laughs> that you know, and that this is not about charity, uh, but to be you know, uh, acting together in solidarity around uh, supporting each other, uh, which is a, a a critical experience for organizing, uh, and 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 while you know it isn't organizing for power in that moment, it is using the power we have in to act collectively to make the world better. And in that sense, it is an organizing effort. Uh, so I think that's important. Um, I also, last night was on a call, I'm fortunate I live here in Western Massachusetts, where the Western Mass Area Labor Federation, uh, the Pioneer Valley Workers Center, uh, and some other groups on a weekly basis have a workers assembly uh, similar to this, but they're regionally focused. Uh, and it's important that they're regionally focused because we, are, we can get to know each other in our spaces and make plans for actions that we wanna take uh, together. There's gonna be uh, Mayday caravans and up and down the Pioneer Valley uh, tomorrow for that. Um, and, and to that, and I, uh, I really respect that as a retail worker who is no longer working, like how to reach out to your coworkers is really, really difficult right now. It's sort of like, um, damn, yeah, I should have built that list. <laughs> That's why they told me to build a list. Uh, but um, I think you, you know, people also have more time. Uh, I've, I've found like within the unions, uh, people are showing up for meetings like nobody's business. You, you call a, a union meeting and like suddenly like you used to, if you got 10 people, you'd be lucky and there are 75 people at the meeting on Zoom. Uh, so there is a, like a hunger for connection. Um, and I think a, 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 a sense that people wanna take, uh, take action, like be a part of something that is about taking control of our lives right now in a meaningful way. Uh, and, you know, I really believe that no matter, if you can get five people on a Zoom call, and after that Zoom call say, like everybody go and bring one more person next week, uh, and next week bring like one more. Like you, that is how it works. We would, if we were in buildings, that's how we'd be doing it, right? You talk to so-and-so, you talk to so-and-so, Five of us are going to get together. 
let's make a plan for how we're going to get five more people in the meeting and build out from that. So in that sense, organizing doesn't change. Your goal is to talk to people so that you can bring them together so that they can identify issues so they can determine how they want to solve that problem and act collectively to solve the problem. It's, that's always the same. Now we just have to do it in this weird space. And it does complicate getting in touch with you. You know, it's not as, as casual the ways that we can reach out. But there, there are possibilities too in terms of our having so much time on our hands. I I would I would echo that, and I actually a little bit of a little note of history here of this show. This show really became began I with when remember that day Facebook went crazy because a lot of the Facebook workers were home and they had uh, auto you know AI trying to do it, and like everybody's posts were getting taken down. I actually posted a paranoid post saying you know we really should establish networks off of Facebook because if this corporate monster really decides to go full fascist. How am I going to get in touch with y'all? Tim Sheard, who I had never had a, an in-person conversation with, uh, who's a co-producer of the show, wrote to me on email, and we started a conversation. We had a Zoom. We reached out to an organizer friend, Seren Mudliar, and out of that came the idea for this show. So, I mean, that's just a little nugget, but I think the cracks in the system, like the frit, thank God Facebook had that fritz day, or thank God the, the workers at Facebook went home and the computers weren't ready yet. At least I'm thankful for that. That cracks. I don't know. Maybe there's a there's a, there's an emblem in there for the the way that the cracks in the dominant system right now are, are opening up real possibilities. Not, not only because we have maybe some of us have more control over our time, some of us, but because the system's so delegitimized right now. People know we need another way, even if we don't know what it is. Exactly. Uh, ben, you want to speak to this, but also I want to ask you. To, to maybe if you could transition also to talk a little bit about May Day, both you know the return of May Day as such an important holiday or you know action day of action in the United States, something that was not true for a long time outside of a very small part of the left, right? And also, what's going on? I mean, you're in a, in a hot spot, and, and well, I mean, pardon the pun, um, for actual May Day organizing, right? Around an actual general strike call that has legs on the ground. Uh, could, could you speak to maybe uh, both the question that has been asked uh, but also by Julia, but also maybe bring us back to, you know, the roots of May Day in the United States or the, the re-sprouting re of May Day in the U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. It really is the rebuilding, the rebirth of May Day in the United States. And, you know, the May Day process, wherever it happens, is a community building process. So I'm really happy to hear about what's going on in uh, Lynn and then you guys call it the North Shore, right? Is that right? Yep. Uh, my folks are from Dorchester and Cambridge originally, so I've been up there. Um, you know, uh, in terms of May Day, I mean, let's recognize, so May Day was a holiday of spring, so it has ecological peasant origins, and then in 1886, it was the day of action for the eight-hour day, led by immigrant workers across uh, the United States primarily, uh, specifically in Chicago and Milwaukee, it got very heated, uh, and there were massacres of workers, and also a couple of police officers were killed in Chicago, and also workers in Milwaukee, in my home state of, of Wisconsin, uh, on May 4th. And that became the basis for the recognition of May Day as International Workers' Day internationally. So May Day was an immigrant workers' holiday. It was an ecological holiday at the beginning, and it has its roots here in the U.S., as well as elsewhere. Of course, you know, May Day, as you said, has been a little bit like Joe Hill. I dreamed I saw May Day last night. 
throughout the 20th century. We had a period of exceptionalism during the Cold War period. So you had very small May Day traditions in many parts of the United States that carried the torch forward. Uh, I think May Day 1970 was an important event for entire generations of activists that then tried to build the May Day practice in their communities. Um, but still, by the early 90s, May Day was not a real thing for most working people, certainly for mainstream unions in much of the country. Um, in my home, I'm, I'm a bit of a Wisconsin nationalist, a lot of us are. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, it, but, and so I talk about Wisconsin a lot, but the reality is, is that I think that the first place where May Day started to make a big comeback in the U.S. was in Wisconsin in May Day 1995. And one of the links, one of the documents I uploaded there, you can see the call for the May Day mobilization for a people's budget, which was 105 organizations, state AFL-CIO, Sierra Club, you know, mainstream groups, as well as IWW, Greens, Earth Firsters, community organizations coming together in an anti-austerity fight that really prefigured the Wisconsin uprising in Occupy uh, much later. Um, that became a regular practice, the May Day mobilization, that coalition in Wisconsin for 10 years. And within two years, we had built it into the Wisconsin Earth Day to May Day coalition. So we were deliberately working to build the red-green or blue-green, depending on your perspective on it, alliance and those politics in Wisconsin. And it was very important culturally in terms of building our movement, the ties. Um, and the practices were things like uh, a picnic, a large May Day picnic, you know, um, marches on both Earth Day and May Day, right? A May Day sing-along in songbooks, such that in Wisconsin, I guarantee there's a higher density of people who know the words of solidarity forever than anywhere else in the country because of all the thousands of people who've been through that process. Okay, jump forward, 2006, just about the time that Earth Day to May Day starts to fade in Wisconsin, you have Day Without an Immigrant. Another major intervention, immigrant workers making May Day a real thing on a much larger basis nationally. Okay, and there are, there are other places in the US and in North America where May Day was a big deal. The Twin Cities, for example, had big May Day uh, celebrations by the late 90s as part of that scene. You have the Day Without an Immigrant in 2006. And then in the last 10 years, you had a deliberate Earth Day to May Day process through the global climate convergence. Uh, and then most recently, going into this year, I was so excited about this organizing. Warehouse Workers United, folks in UE, the Teamsters, Unifor, coming together to organize Earth Day to May Day actions across North America that should have been happening on a much larger scale right now, okay? So I think we should just recognize that we have, to a large extent, succeeded in bringing May Day back, collectively, all of us, and in building the ties between Earth Day and May Day, and building a working class environmentalism that's ready to move, and that even though we're in the pandemic period, we are, that's still there. That's all still there and can be mobilized and it will be mobilized. I placed a bunch of other links there uh, as well in the chat for people to take a look at. Thank you, Ben. I should say that uh, next, uh, next week's show, we will focus on immigrant, the struggle for imminent, immigrant, immigrant worker justice in this moment with Aviva Chomsky, uh, Joseph Nevins, uh, and s several other um, uh, great speaker, scholar, activist, and immigrant worker organizers. So I hope you'll join us back 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time next Thursday for Shelter and Solidarity. We have two people, at least two people, and Gladys Vega from Chelsea Collaborative, uh, and a couple other folks too that are slipping my mind right now. Um, as, I, we, as I'm cognizant of the time, we have 11 minutes before I believe we do really need to wrap up today. Glad we still have so many people with us. We have at least two people on um, Zoom who would like to speak. We have a, a student organizer, 
uh, from Massachusetts, Amy Blanchett, that would not, would like to speak. So, Amy, why don't we take your question, comment, and then we I, I understand Julie has a brief follow-up, a concrete idea for higher ed organizing. Amy, so glad you could join us today. Uh, thank you. Sorry, that's my phone. <laughs> um, so my name is Amy Blanchett. Um, I am the president of FENOM, which stands for Public Higher Education Network of Massachusetts. Um, I had been supervising two Bristol Community College students who are under me who are student organizers. Um, I have since been laid off from Bristol Community College. Um, I don't know if you talked about this in, in the first hour. I was actually on a Phenom board call from four to six and that's why I couldn't join in the, in the first hour. Um, and Phenom is, is making some tough and very difficult decisions in terms of organizing um, right now as well due to funding and um, everything that's happened with COVID. So um, it's, it's a very um, sad time. I don't, I hate using the word un, un, unprecedented and <laughs> it's been thrown around so much, but um, it is, um, you know, at BCC, they laid off about 140 people. There was about 35 who were retrenched, who had union positions. Um, I am not in the union. I'm a part-time staff member. I work at Bristol Community College in the Office of Student and Family Engagement. Um, and my job, while I do get to plan some fun events, um, the main purpose of my job is to help students who struggle with homelessness, food insecurity, addiction, um, mental health, um, those kinds of things. Uh, and these students come to me, a lot of them first generation, a lot of them non-traditional who have students who struggle with daycare, who struggle with you know, food security and, and these kinds of things. Um, and what administration fails to realize is that um, it's not like they can just come to me and I can pass them off to a couple of resources. Um, and I can assume that they're going to get those resources and they're going to be fine and everything's going to be okay. Because when you're a full-time student and you have kids and you're worried about whether the electric's going to be on when you get home or not, um, you know, you're basically in like a fight or flight mode. And a lot of these students kind of need you to hold their hand a bit and kind of guide them um, through the process. Um, so that was really what my job was. Um, and, and they laid me off and a lot of my students are upset about it, you know, um, understandably so because I was helping a lot of them and now if I help them, I'm helping them on my own time um, unpaid. Um, the administration um, had to come out and done this, the president did this coffee hour with the students today and some of the students came on and, and had complained about the layoffs um, and they stated that a lot, most of these employees that were laid off weren't doing any work remotely and that they had been getting paid um, without doing any work remotely. And that's not true, that's not accurate. I was definitely working from home and um, the, the entire time, the resource list that the college has been passing around, I actually created for the students and was calling all the food pantries and soup kitchens and, and all of these shelters and, and all of these things to make sure um, that everything was as up to date as it could be. Um, and so they have no problem to share that list out and to not acknowledge you know, that I created it and that they laid me off. Um, it, it's just, it's a very sad time. Um, the MCCC had um, created a, a response back about the layoffs and faculty senate and staff senate refused to sign off on it. Um, and it's a shame because I'm actually a staff senator. Uh, I represent the part-time staff um, and, and the staff senate refused to sign off on it. Um, it there's definitely this, this, I mean, I mean, we already had seen it last year, you know, with that historic vote about um, you know, people being able to separate from the union. Um, but now, you know, you see it more than ever that they're really trying to divide the union 
um, apart. And it, it's just, it's, it's a very hard time to see and now seeing, you know, what we're going through with Phenom with our organizing and not knowing where our finances are going to stand for, for the following year, you know, and being worried about that. Um, you know, we do so, so much organizing throughout the year, um, you know, whether it's testifying on bills, speaking at rallies, you know, you name it, um, to know that that isn't going to be there. Um, it's just, it's, it's a lot right now. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Amy, I mean, thank you for being here and thank you for laying that out. I mean, I think you're a very sobering here reminder of, of how even as we, as some of us as educators and maybe thinking about demands for what is going to happen and shape our classroom, right, or online or in person, we really need to be digging deeper and thinking more broadly and, and connecting with people, right, in terms of this, this broader just meeting people's basic human needs right now, right? I mean, you know, fighting layoffs, but also to think, you know, working for the students that are they're struggling with keeping the lights on, as you say. So, I mean, I want to thank you for being here and just extend you solidarity. I understand you have a petition or something. I, we, we talked about this for, from Bristol. If you share that with the list here, I'm sure many of us will sign it. Hopefully all of us will sign it and, and circulate it. We certainly will on the Shelter and Solidarity website. I know that's not enough, but that's something. Um, did, does... Uh, I know we also, does anyone want to speak directly, uh, Barbara, Ben, uh, Anna, uh, speak directly to Amy on this? I mean, she, she challenges us all. I mean, not only, uh, you know, I mean, we need a response to this, right? What are, how do we support our people, including the people literally in the organizations that have been doing the organizing, as well as the people they serve? I just uh, want to ask, I yeah, just want to ask really quick about Phenom and, and, and let open space for others to respond to the rest. But, um, that phenom is an inspiration so is it too late to put out a call i talked earlier on you know about the need to direct resources to things like phenom you know i mean how can you know how bad is it i mean is this already done or can we you know raise a hue and cry here yeah yeah i mean i'd like to think we could do a future show bringing some of these organizations we had talked about looking at left and progressive media much of which depends on in-person events to sustain itself right? And doing a show on that, a mutual aid show that could also be literal fundraising to sustain these organizations. Maybe we should do one on some of these progressive advocacy and organizing groups too, and share resources, knowledge networks. I mean, I'm sure Phenom has its own plan, but we'd certainly be happy to use this space to support you, Amy, Bristol folks. We can come back and do a show on community colleges. I mean, I don't think community colleges factored enough into our conversation today. That's another hierarchy and a fragmentation we have. I mean, I mean UMass Boston is, gets kicked around, but we at least get in the news when we are getting kicked around, right? What's happening at the community colleges? I mean, I, I would love to have you back, Amy, and people you're working with. And I mean, I'm speaking quickly because we're running out of time. But, you know, thank you for being here. And let's, I hope this is not the last, but the first of one of these uh, organizing opportunities. Thank you for being there. Um, being here and there. Uh, Ju Julia, you had a point you wanted to make before we close out. I think we are running out of time, so if you can keep it short, but you, it sounded like you had something concrete, which is always nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually, um, thank you. And thank you, all of you, for, um, for doing this and putting this together and being here. Um, I'm actually back in the classroom this semester to finish a 10-year-old uh, incomplete, so that's very interesting to be back in Hunter College. Um, and I have just been thinking over the last few weeks about how 
upsetting mentally it's going to be for me once my Zoom classes end, um, because I'm not going to have this platform to see all of these students anymore. And last night in class actually um, was really relevant because we're talking about incarceration. And at the end of class, I was just like, this is happening in prisons right now, la 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 la. And something really interesting happened, which was that like all of the students in the class started chiming in. We ended up staying in class for like an extra 10 minutes. The professor was like, I don't know whether you guys want to go. Um, but I was thinking, I don't know if any of you are still on online platforms. And obviously there's a limitation to, to access in this. Um, but if any of you are still teaching online classes, I think there's definitely a place where students might want to continue to be seen or in a classroom and to get together. And I know that also as a student organizer, maintaining organizing over the summer is really, really hard. And I think this actually might be a really great opportunity to stay in touch. Um, so thanks. Absolutely, thank you for that, uh, Julia. I mean, I think we need to be, as Barbara mentioned earlier, more deliberate. I mean, the challenge and the opportunity of this moment, one of them is that we, we need to, if, we, if we're not deliberate about reaching out to people, we won't see hardly anyone at all. But, but we also maybe, some of us have more ability to be deliberate if we can, if we can use the time and energy we have and the technology if we have it. Um, we, our first show was on mass incarceration and we spoke to two people in prison. Uh, you can check that out. That was, social, that was Shelter and Solidarity number one and we're gonna cycle back to that in specific. Uh, we do need to wrap up. So I wanna thank all our guests here again one more time. Barbara Mataloni, Ben Mansky, Anna Kornblu, Chris Newfield, Jonathan Feinberg, uh, Adam Kaz Kaczynski, uh, my co-producers. Uh, did I, I didn't miss anyone, did I? I think I'm good, right? Uh, Tim, Tim Sheard, uh, my co-producer, uh, and, and works at Hardball Press. Y'all check out Hardball Press. Check out the great working class stories coming out of Hardball Press, as well as Labor Press. He's got some great articles about nurses and patients on the front line. My co-producer, Seren Mudliar, who does so much of the behind the scenes work. Um, and thank you, Seren. Thank you also to Linda Liu for producing the artwork and more things for the show. Thank you to Phil O'Connor for helping really to kind of secretly co-produce this show, at least the second hour of it. Um, our next show next week will be on this fight for immigrant justice in, the, in light of the COVID struggle. Please join us back, tell your friends, spread to your networks. Uh, we wanna build this and we wanna support what you're doing. Uh, have a righteous May Day. Happy is the word these days, but happy for, you know, to celebrate what's left of the earth. We can still defend. We'll come back to that topic later. A righteous May Day to you all. Stay strong. Keep safe. Um, keep engaged and, and keep together. See you next week. <laughs>